Rev it up and welcome to Cars Yeah, show number 2083. This week on Cars Yeah, you best buckle up because we're celebrating the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion that takes place August 17th through the 21st at WeatherTech Raceway, Laguna Seca. To get your tickets and learn more, go to WeatherTechRaceway.com. This is Cars Yeah, where you'll enjoy interviews with inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Mark Green is here to provide you with a fuel injection of automotive inspiration. So get in, sit down, buckle up, and get ready for a wild ride here on Cars Yeah. Hello, inspiring automotive enthusiasts, and welcome to Cars Yeah. Today I'm in beautiful Mission Viejo with a very special guest, a guy you'll know from racing by the name of Mo Amari. Mo, welcome to Cars Yeah. Do you have any gear, and are you ready to release the clutch? I am, Mark. Thanks for the warm welcome. You're welcome. Now, before I give you a proper introduction, what's one little thing maybe people don't know about you, Mo? Oh, uh, I try and keep a lot of things people don't know about me. <laughs> well, you have to expose one for us today. One juicy tidbit. <laughs> uh, one juicy tidbit. Um, I, that's a, that's a, you've stumped me right off the bat. Uh, I would say that I was born and raised in, in the suburbs of Dublin, Ireland, and yeah. I love, loved every minute of, of living in Ireland. But it's a small island, and, and as most of my generation did, we needed to get off the island, and, and I never went back. Well, you've come a long way since those days of your youth in Ireland. Allow me to give you a proper introduction here. Mo Murray is the Senior VP and Program Manager at the Garage Team Mazda. His focus is on their motorsports in marketing strategy and brand integration. He spent a life in motorsports starting at an early age when he left Ireland to pursue his dreams of making a career in the sport that he loved. He worked as a mechanic and crew chief in the precursor to what is now the MotoGP. He created his own winning team, capturing the U.S. AMA motorcycle road racing title. He then joined Bombardier, overseeing their motorsports activities, including Indy Lights. Mo has worked in executive leadership roles with oversight of sales, marketing, product development, brand licensing, experiential, and motorsports operations, and has also enjoyed success as a publisher and trade consumer show director. Today, he enjoys off-roading in his Jeep and adventure motorcycle riding, plus he is a longtime participant in the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion and WeatherTech Raceway in both historic and professional races. We'll be back in just a moment, but first a word from our sponsors, so please give them a little listen, and we'll be right back. Buckle up. We're with Mo Murray. Covercraft's newest five-layer indoor cover is especially engineered for indoor use, providing maximum dust protection when your vehicle's stored in the garage. Your five-layer indoor cover is custom-tailored with Covercraft's attention to detail, form, and fit with the quality and attention to detail that's been their standard since 1965. Even if your vehicle is always inside, dust and fallout can damage the paint, and an extra layer of soft, Breathable material protects from accidental bumps and rubs. Covercraft protects cars, trucks, motorcycles, RVs, trailers, and watercraft too. Every one of my vehicles is protected with a Covercraft cover, custom fit to fit the car like a glove. And I have a deal for you. If you use the code YA21 at Covercraft.com, you'll get 10% off your order plus free shipping. That's right, 10% off and free shipping. Simply use the code YAH, Y-E-A-H-2-1, at checkout. Covercraft, protecting the things that move you. 
Zengen, it's an oil analysis kit that allows you to sample your engine's oil and learn about its inner health with your personalized and detailed Zengen report. At only $39.95 and free shipping both ways, your Zengen oil analysis costs less than an oil change. It's really simple. Their easy-to-use sample kit takes less than five minutes to collect your sample and mail it back to their world-class labs. It's only five days, and they'll send you your own Zengen score via email. Your report measures 30 different data points, including contamination, metals, lubricants, additives, and a whole lot more. Whether you're buying or selling a vehicle, nearing the end of your warranty, heading out on a road trip, or caring for your vintage collector car, Zengen helps prevent costly repairs, allowing you to get the most value out of your vehicle. And Father's Day is coming. I know Dad doesn't want another tie or a pair of socks. This year, give Dad his very own Zengen oil test kit, and you'll make him smile. I did, and I'm so relieved to learn that my vehicles are doing just fine. Go to ZengenScore.com and use the code CARSYA20 and you'll get 20% off. Boom! What a deal. Preventative knowledge and maintenance could save you thousands, and you'll rest better at night knowing your engine's condition is just right. That's ZengineScore.com and use the code CARSYA20 today. I was tired of my rates for my collector car insurance going up every year for no explainable reason. My carrier seemed to be turning into a media company versus an insurance company, and I realized that a portion of my policy premium was paying for all those so-called free media goodies. So I did my homework, I talked to knowledgeable collectors, shopped around, and discovered American Collectors Insurance. They've been serving the collector car hobby since 1976. You last that long by properly serving your customers' insurance need, not with a lot of fluff. ACI is ranked the number one online collector car insurance provider according to Google, Trustpilot, Facebook, and they offer their real person guarantee live support. No never-ending phone loops when you need help. Plus, because you don't use your classic car as a daily driver, you could save up to 40% compared to regular auto insurance. American Collectors Insurance provides agreed value policies. So if you experience a total loss to your collector vehicle or it's stolen, you'll be paid the amount listed on your declaration page, less any deductibles, of course. No ifs, ands, or buts. Give them a call today and ask for your free quote at 866-A-C-I-Y-E-A-H. That's 866-224-9324. Tell them you're a friend of mine, Mark Greens, at Cars Yeah. American Collectors Insurance. Classic car insurance designed by collectors for collectors. So, Mo, so let's dive a little deeper in the corner, something you know all about. What an amazing career. And when you think about your career, you were a young kid in Ireland that loved motorsports and decided to, as you said in our pre-show chat, get off the island and seek out your adventure. Take us back on a walk through your career before we move into the, the present in the upcoming motorsport reunion. So growing up, you know, I was in my, my mid-teens in the 70s, and the 70s in Ireland and its near-neighbor England were glory years for, for motor racing, particularly for drivers who aspired to make it to Formula One. Formula Ford uh, was booming in Ireland and England at that time, and Formula Ford and Formula Atlantic, some of those old, very exciting open-wheel series were, were big. And so I just got hooked on it and started traveling to the races, finding any way I could to get to the race track 
we only had one permanent race facility in the Republic of Ireland. So, and it was about a half hour from my house. So I used to hitch a ride and I'd go to the track. And my first exposure to racing, I, 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 I went as a kid, a precocious kid, I went up into the announcer's tower to, to get a better view. Oh, wow. <laughs> and the announcer saw me and he said, he looked quizzically at me and asked me what I was doing there. And he asked me if I knew what a lap chart was. And I said, no, but I can learn. And so wow. he handed me a pen and some paper. This, of course, is before computers and all that kind of stuff. So, so that's how the announcer kept track of the races. I would sit down, and as the cars went by, I would just keep a grid and create a lap chart. And I did that for a season, I think. And I'd get me the best seat in the house. I could see the whole racetrack. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. Imagine someone trying to do that today. It never happened. Yeah. <laughs> and it was it was it was a fantastic sort of introduction to the sport for me. And then, you know, the woman I used to get a ride from the to the racetrack with, her husband, her family ran the corner workers club. And I showed up about a year later at a race to do my lap charting and they were short of flagger. So so she said, Nope, you're a flagger now. <laughs> wow. So I spent I spent uh, quite a bit of time as a flag marshal. Um, had one very famous incident with a famous driver named Tommy Byrne, who got within inches of mowing me down with a Formula Ford, and and uh, I guess it, I guess it, it got it became famous because somebody snapped a picture of it, and that picture is oh my god, it's uh, included in Tommy's book and in Tommy's movie that he came out with uh, recently. So, so you're the kid, you're the kid in that picture. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Wow. Yeah, Tommy's been a guest here on the show. Wonderful yeah, guy. Tommy's yeah, great guy. And so I, you know, I, I was at corner work for a while and then I started going, to, I got involved in motorcycle racing because of the corner working, they need flaggers too. And yeah. then I sort of befriended some guys who were racing and started working on their bikes and traveling to the races with them. And, and, you know, just one thing led to another, I would say I'm, I'm an opportunist. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. And so I connected with a young uh, Irish motorcycle racer who, who had aspirations to go big. And so we left on the boat one night and went to England. And he didn't make it in racing. He made it. He's a very successful businessman, but he didn't make it in racing. But I ended up working for other teams in England and then moved to Germany and worked for teams, won a European championship as a crew chief with a German team, won a German championship, worked in the GP level for, uh, for a while and then came over here to do the same, ran a team in, in 88 here in the U.S. championship. Um, and after a few years, I, I, I managed to find a sponsor who uh, I guess I, I was still the precocious kid, and I told the sponsor, if you pay for it, I'll win you a national championship. And he took me at my word, but fortunately, I delivered for him. And in 1991, uh, a rider named Jimmy Felice, we won the U.S. 250cc uh, road racing championship here in the U.S. Incredible. Based on the strength <laughs> that Bombardier hired me, they were just starting their watercraft racing program at that time, um, and they needed somebody to run it. So they hired me and moved me to Quebec. Um, and then to Florida, and then eventually after six years or so gave me responsibility for snowmobile racing also, and they had an Indy Lights promotion they did. So I was with them for about eight years. They moved me to Wisconsin uh, eventually for snowmobile racing. I was with them for about eight years and left them and went into the motorcycle aftermarket. I worked for SNS Cycle, a big engine company. I uh, worked for a couple of distribution companies, had my own agency for a while, worked for a, a magazine and trade show company. And then I was recruited to go join Yamaha to head up their uh, parts and accessories and service business, including their performance brands in racing. I, wasn't, I didn't run the racing program, but I was heavily involved because of our performance brands. Um, and that got me back into the MotoGP paddock because obviously back then MotoGP was coming to the U.S. I think three times a year at that time. And so it was a lot of fun. And I left them after about six years and uh, went back into the 
trade show uh, business for a little while. And then Zach Brown uh, had a company called uh, JMI, Zach now with McLaren. Yeah. JMI had just been brought on to help Mazda restructure their motorsports, the marketing side of their motorsports business. And he recommended to them that they, they hire somebody and embed them in their marketing community in California. And I knew some people at Zach's company um, and they reached out to me and asked me if I'd be interested. And so that was 10 years ago. I joined the Mazda family. I don't work for Mazda. I spent the first five working for uh, JMI, Zach's company. And then I and then I switched and now I work for Mazda's integrated agency. Mazda has an <clears throat> integrated agency model, Garage Team Mazda, it's called. And so that's who I work for, but I'm part of the Mazda marketing community. community and uh, I handle all of the marketing and the strategic development of their motorsports initiatives, integrating their motorsports back into the brand messaging. So Ooh, holy cow, <laughs> what a life. Yeah, like, like I said, still trying to avoid ever having a real job. <laughs> well, <laughs> it sounds wonderful. And as we fast forward, of course, Mazda has, has had a long relationship with uh, uh, Laguna Seca Racetrack and racing there. And I want to move into that a little bit because We've been promoting this week the historic races, and as I've always called them, I've gone to 30 of them now, 31 of them now, and that's where I got my racing license was the Skip Barber School there years ago. Love that track. It's so much fun. What is the Laguna Seca Raceway and, of course, now it's WeatherTech Raceway uh, and the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion? That whole venture mean to you? Well, that week is is my favorite week of the year. That's, I mean, for, for 17 years, uh, that track was known as Mazda Raceway, Laguna Seca. And it was, it was and <clears throat> to some of us, it still is Mazda's spiritual home. The diamond in their, in their tiara is the, is the uh, reunion week, um, the Rolex reunion week. And, and they've had many, many other significant major events. MotoGP went there for several years. World Superbike goes there. Um, IndyCar is back there, you know, the, and obviously IMSA sports cars go there. So, but, uh, and all those events are, are special and they're great events to be at. But, but for me, the Rolex reunion is the one that, that I look forward to uh, every year. Um, and we typically go for, both pre-reunion and reunion, so it is a it is a week long uh, affair. There's so much going on on the peninsula that week with the with all the car shows and everything everything automotive related that goes on on the peninsula that week. And I'll be honest with you, I've been there I don't know a dozen times or something like that. I don't think I've ever ventured out from the racetrack. I spend all <laughs> of my time at the racetrack. Yeah. Um, in fact, one of my favorite things to do is to bring a camper and stay at the racetrack oh, when yeah. we're working. So. Um, and for me, it's the diversity of cars that show up there. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a history buff. I, I like the history of our sport, and that's why working with these Mazda historic cars is so much fun for me. But walking around that paddock and looking at the cars from you know, the very early 19-teens all the way up through, through the 70s and 80s, my, you know, the era that I sort of grew up in, and especially when they bring Formula One cars, it's just it's such a great event, you know, and... and you know where you can walk around the paddock and 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 meet people who are racing, still racing a Model T, and then there's a Porsche 917, and then there's uh, you know a bunch of different Formula One cars from the 70s and 80s, and it's just it's a it's an incredible uh, week. I tell people you'll see more vehicles that week than you will in your entire lifetime. And Bruce Canepa was our guest Monday, and he put it really well. He said you would have to go to dozens and dozens of events around the world to see all the different kind of vehicles that you'll see during 
Monterey Car Week, Pebble Beach Car Week, uh, again, Laguna Seca, the historic races. And this year, they've moved the event back a day. So there's four days now. Back when I first started going, it was just two days. Now it's four. And it's nice. It doesn't run into Sunday, even though they'll have some activities then. So if you want to go to the Pebble Beach Concord, you don't feel like you're missing. Because that was always a struggle for me. I wanted to be at the track, but then there's all these other events and you spend all this money to go down there and you want to see everything. It's kind of impossible, isn't it? Yes, it is. The Sunday uh, activities, when I when I chatted to Barry and the folks at the track, the Sunday activities this year will be quite fun. Actually, I'm looking forward to them, but not the traditional on-track race tra- race activities that we've had in the past. But yeah, it's it's just, it's, it's, and if, you know, the sessions are short necessarily because a lot of these cars are old and, and some of the drivers are old. <laughs> and so the sessions are short, but, but everybody gets so many sessions that if you miss, you know, seeing your favorite car in one session, you just stick around a little bit or come back the next day and it, you'll see it again. I'm also, I've spent quite a bit of time as, a, as a, an amateur photographer. Uh, and obviously, Barry and the team up there have been very kind and always allowing me access to, to get out and on the track to the photo holes and, and take pictures. And, you know, where else are you going to capture photographs of these cars? It's, it's uh, Bruce is exactly right. You'd have to spend a whole year traveling to events to see the mix of cars that will show up at the Rolex reunion. And Bruce is somebody who knows about cars. I recently had a chance to visit his facility, and and the collection up there is very special. I took years, a couple of years, well, before pre-COVID, I took a friend of mine I had reunited with who used to surf with him growing up in La Jolla, and he went off, became a doctor, and moved away, and he's become a bit of a, well, not a bit, a very good photographer, loves motorsports and so forth. So I brought him with me, I think it was 2018, 2017, got him a photo pass, and you know, after just the first day, I think it was Tuesday of that week, the Carmel by the Sea event that happens we spend the whole day there and he goes, oh my gosh, I'm worn out. And I said, well, you've got like six more days of this stuff. Wait till yeah. you get to the racetrack because that's exactly. where he really, yeah. And he was just, I mean, just, he didn't, you know, he's blown away. It's like, ah, this is amazing. So I always tell listeners, if you have not been, you've got to go. It's just one of those things you have to do, a bucket list type item in your life. And as many times as I've been, and I think you're probably going to say the same, Mo, every year you never get tired. You just want to keep going back right? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's uh, incredible. Now you mentioned yeah. you love it when they bring the historic F1 cars. They're going to do that again this year. Are there some specific groups of cars that you really just love to watch run? Yes, I would, I would have to admit there are. So for me, I first fell in love with Formula One in 1976. Oh, nice, um, so nice the, year. Yeah. the first year that they had the low air boxes when they banned the high air boxes um, and obviously, the, the, that year was made famous much later on by the Rush movie and the, obviously the iconic points battle between Loud and Hunt. But the, but the cars of that year, they really trigger my interest And for about a decade. So, so 76 through about 82, the turbos had come in and 83, the turbos started to, started to win. And those turbo cars are much more complex. And so there's fewer of them around. Those V8-powered uh, cars of that era are, are very special to me. Growing up in Ireland, you know, in 1976, an Irishman or somebody from the island of Ireland, he's actually from Northern Ireland, John Watson, won a Grand Prix, and that was the first time somebody from the island of Ireland had won a Formula One race. And he won it in a Penske PC4 in Austria in the summer of 76. 
And Doug Mockett owns and runs that same Penske PC4 now. And so when that shows up, it's it's one of those things that when you grow up and you, and you, you, you mature enough to understand a little bit what nostalgia is and what those feelings are in, in going on in your heart, that when I see that car, it's like tasting that that ice cream that you had as a kid or <laughs> hearing that song that was important when you were 17 years old. So that that car particularly is is uh, one that, that I really find emotive. But all the cars that raced in that era, you know, they were much shorter than modern Formula One cars. There were, there were tiny little cars. Um, and I can remember having a full collection, a full grid of 143rd scale diecast <laughs> yeah. of the entire Formula One grid. Uh, and I would lay out a track around my bedroom at home and, and have these little races. Um, and now I go and I, I go to this event and I see all these same cars, but they're the real ones. They're, they're, they're full size. And, yeah. and you know, for us, for the, from the Mazda side, the sports cars are also, you know, very iconic. And the, the era of sports car racing a little bit later on, maybe, Maybe into the late '80s and early '90s is, is you know the, the sports car era that that gets my attention. But it's an interesting thing because having spent so much time in the motorcycle business mo- and motorcycle racing world, there doesn't appear to be the same strength of of bond or strength of passion towards the nostalgia side of the sport. And maybe it's because the the vehicles themselves are smaller or they don't physically look all that different from right. from what we have today. Um, but car, cars from that era or, or any era, they're just they're so representative and they're so different from one era to the next that I think it's 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 a very emotive thing. It's something that really inspires me to to you know I go there and I, I walk around the paddock at, at reunion or pre reunion even is even better because it's much more relaxed. Yeah, um, less people there. Yeah, less people, and you know you can. It's not like going to a modern race where you stand behind the the, the tape line and you look in and you see everything at a distance of twenty feet. It, with these cars, you can walk right up to them. You can chat to the people who are working on them or the people who are going to step in and drive them. And it's it's a, it's a really unique event. And and uh, and I loved I love going to to. WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Sega for that reason for that week it's it's a it's a beautiful event it's fantastic the first Formula One race I attended was the 1976 U.S. Grand Prix in Long Beach ah, and because right. I was living down in uh, La Jolla growing up I graduated from high school in 76 and I think that race was in March it was before graduation and went up with a bunch of buddies and I remember Ferrari uh, Clay Regazzoni won that in yeah. a 312T. And to this day, when I see those, the 312T, I mean, it just brings back the emotion. And we were lucky because one of my friend's dad was involved somehow. He got us behind into the pits and we got to see the drivers. And, you know, he, I think he was sponsoring something or probably writing big checks. I don't know what it was, yeah, but yeah. we got to go where no one else got to go. And uh, I remember shooting a whole bunch of pictures. I still have a box full of those uh, slides. I was shooting those oh, slides back then. Yeah. And of course, the 76 Long Beach Grand Prix, although they banned the high air boxes in 76, they didn't do it until they got back to Europe. And right. So yeah, that race high box still, had, still had the high air box. And that Ferrari with the with the, the 75 car was all red. The air box was white, mm. was was red. But in 76, the air box was white with the little Italian flag pinstriping underneath it. And it's, it's just the most beautiful creation ever. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> spectacular. We'll take a short break. We come back. I want to talk a little bit about challenges. I always ask my guests this question, so sit tight, keep the seatbelts tight, and we'll be right back. You listeners know that I'm a huge car care fanatic, and my friends at AutoGeek created their Wolfgang Deep Gloss Paint Sealant for perfectionists like you and me. 
Wolfgang Deep Gloss Paint Sealant is designed to provide long-lasting protection and a glossy, slick finish that, well, it's unmatched. The use of polymer technology ensures your paint is protected from environmental contaminants, those damaging UV rays, and lasts up to three months long. By providing the glossy look of Carnuba Wax with the longevity of a synthetic formula, Wolfgang Deep Gloss Paint Sealant is the best of both worlds. Go to autogeek.net to get yours for the best product selection on the internet today, along with their skilled technical support. Autogeek.net is where I go for all my detailing needs. That's autogeek.net. I've discovered Linkage. It's a new quarterly publication and website that covers the automotive market, driving, restoring, collecting, and discovering your passion for motor vehicles. Linkage is about experiences, opinions, and values. Linkage is an actual, informed, reasoned opinion based on first-hand experiences. A talented Linkage team covers the automotive world, the people who share your passion and mine, smart, considered, rational, and experienced opinions, ones you can learn from and grow. That includes our passion that drives auctions and the collector car market. So come with me and join us on this journey. And be sure to use the code CARSYEAH when you subscribe, and they'll give you $10 off. Boom! Linkage, geared for the automotive life. Subscribe today at LinkageMag.com. 20, 50, or 100 years from now, Will there be a workforce to care for the collector vehicles we love? With auto shop programs disappearing across the country, it's a question we enthusiasts have to ask. That's why I support the RPM Foundation, which exists to ensure that the critical skills necessary to preserve and restore these vehicles aren't lost to time. One of the many ways RPM, which is short for Restoration, Preservation, and Mentorship, is accomplishing this goal is through workforce development initiatives, The RPM Apprenticeship Program enables the next generation of artisans to earn a living while they learn the craft of restoring and preserving these vehicles directly from industry professionals. The Endangered Skills Program documents the process of masters training future craftspeople on a variety of critical skills in danger of being lost forever. For more information on how the RPM Foundation is driving the future of the collector vehicle skills trade, visit RPM Foundation today. They're one of the charities of choice here on Cars Yeah. All right, so we're back. I always like to ask my guests about a big challenge they faced, failure. Now, you worked in the motorsports industry. I mean, talk about challenges. Talk about failure. Talk about obstacles. It's like every day you face one. Uh, people like you that have stayed in that industry for their whole life really have to love it because uh, it's got to be a bit of a love-hate. Is there a huge challenge you'd like to share with us? And more importantly, what was the really valuable lesson in that challenge? Uh, that's a great question. I would say when I talk to uh, people about motorsports, and I, we try and use in, in my current job with Mazda, but elsewhere in my career, I try and use motorsports as a, as a teaching opportunity. And we tell people, you know, motorsports is real-time problem solving. It's, you've got to solve a problem by the next time the car comes back around on the lap. And that's really what it is. It's real-time problem solving. And you'll see in modern Formula One, for example, they'll have teams and teams of engineers sitting in England who are connected to the racetrack, and they're all working as the cars lapping the racetrack. They're all working to solve a strategic or a technical problem 
in real time. And so motorsports is a, is a, a real-time problem-solving exercise. For me, although I, I worked on the technical side of it when I was in my motorcycle days, I didn't really work on the technical side, or I'm not good enough to work on the technical side of the car, car racing side. But convincing, for me, the, the, the big challenge is, is finding the balance, convincing people that's something that, that I'm so passionate about and that I love so much that it, it has a meaning to them or, or that I can show them a meaning uh, in the sport. So that's that's always been challenging. And it's finding that balance between being too pushy with people and pushing my my values onto somebody or, or allowing them to discover uh, the sport for themselves. We were talking in our pre-show chat about the uh, Netflix series Drive to Survive. And, and what you're s- explaining here in one of those shows, Christian Horner, talked about the emotional drain at the end of a race, especially running two cars, of having to constantly rethink the race every lap for both cars of how they're going to win. Exactly. How how do you keep that in your head? I mean, he's got a huge team helping him, but I can't imagine the stress. But I think the way you put it is is great. That's one of those skill sets that some people never tackle or are unable to tackle is real-time problem solving. Some people need to stop, think, sleep on it. You can't do that in motorsports. No, no, not at all. And and it's it's a very interesting uh, dynamic. Once you get to the top levels of motorsports or any sport, um, you know, wh- whether it's, it's you know, coll- collegiate athletics or whatever, it, once you get to those levels, everybody's good. There's no, there aren't any bad players. There aren't any bad drivers or riders at that level. Everybody's good. So being good is not enough. Being good is not going to raise you to the top of the list any longer. You now have to find that that's something that takes you beyond just being good behind the wheel or behind the handlebars. And I often think of a driver like Michael Schumacher, clearly one of the best ever. But when Michael Schumacher left Benetton and went to Ferrari in two. When was that? 98, he went there. Mm-hmm. The Ferrari was was junk at the time. Ferrari hadn't won in a long time, and the Ferrari was junk. Berger and Alessi left Ferrari, and Michael Schumacher and Irvine went over to Ferrari. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the first year was terrible. And then a year later, they started to find their way, and a year after that, they started winning, right? And I remember I read a comment, I think it was Alessi, or somebody had said a comment that, how come they didn't build me that car when I was there? How come he gets there and they build that car? What he totally underestimated was the role that Michael Schumacher himself had played in lifting that team up. Mm. That's where that magic is. It's The driver is the quarterback. And the driver and the team owner, you mentioned Horner, the team owner, their job is to motivate people to find that extra something and keep everybody working late in, at night, keep, not in an oppressive way, not in a, in a, in a you know, a, crack the whip kind of way, but keep everybody motivated that there's a, a higher objective here. There's a higher goal here. And the, the winning does not happen on the racetrack. The winning happens before you ever get to the racetrack. And I guess you asked about challenges and lessons. That That's that's one I think that's, that's very important that a lot of people, I see a lot of young drivers come into the sport and they, they fully understand how they're going to spend all their money and how they're going to behave when they make it. But they can't tell me what they're going to do tomorrow to make it uh, to get one to get one day closer. And they don't they don't have that that work ethic or that that determination. Frankly, I didn't have it. When you know, you mentioned my my career going in racing. I never had. I love to drive. I, I enjoy driving racing cars. But I never had the desire or the determination to be behind the wheel, to be the champion, to be the winner of the race. That didn't drive me, and therefore I would never have been successful because it requires that 
that complete dedication, that complete ability to push everything else off to the side and have a completely singular goal of taking your car or your bike or your team to the top of the top of the timesheets every time, right? And that's why great athletes don't last very long. A good career in, in any of these top level sports is you know, eight or 10 years. It's it's very unusual for somebody to go longer than that. You could look at somebody like Rossi in MotoGP, who had a very long career. But frankly, you know, the last few years of it, he wasn't performing at that level, that mental level, that emotional level. I think that's, it's a, it's a huge toll. It takes a huge toll on a person. And it's a massive relief when, when drivers finally step away and say, okay, I'm done now. And, and uh, that, you know, constant every day, every minute, we got to find a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. Um, it's it's a uh, you know the old adage that good enough isn't. Um, it, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's very is very true in racing that you've got to no matter how good you think you are, somebody's going to be better than you, and you've got to find find a way. I think that's why that Drive to Survive series I find fascinating. You and I spoke a little bit about it before our talk today. That it's it's drawn in a lot of people that aren't really interested in the sport because you see the personal side and the sacrifice and what it takes. And every moment you think, oh, it's going to get better, and then it doesn't because a tire goes down or exactly you know exactly. Or somebody runs into the back of another team member i won't mention red bull uh but uh <laughs> yeah it's uh it's crazy and, it's crazy and some of those things you know if the car breaks or a tire lets go or somebody hits you or something that's that's less of a challenge for some of these these finely tuned athletes than if they simply can't find the performance and it, and just a few years ago it was completely un, unheard of and and almost unacceptable for a driver to admit that they had a weakness for a driver to admit that you know that there was anything wrong in their makeup because their teammate would pounce on them there everybody would pounce on them and take them away so it's kind of it's kind of a relief and maybe drive to survive has opened the 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 curtains a little bit to see somebody like lando norris who's a young kid you know lando's a lando's a a young kid who's been thrown into this world with with incredible pressure on his shoulders mm-hmm. To, to admit that he has some some you know I don't I would, I'm not sure he goes so far as to say mental health challenges but but you know anxieties that 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 that, that affect, affect you. Yeah. his performance and being able to admit that now um, and and being able to recognize that that this world has takes a toll on these they're, they're kids I mean you yeah, you're so young yeah I wouldn't serve half of these kids a beer without pardon them they're 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 um they're they're it's a it's a really really high pressure world no kidding and unfortunately in the lower formula that pressure now now manifests itself because they see formula one as well that's the way we're all supposed to behave so so that pressure now has to come down to the lower formula and it's that's a very small window of opportunity yeah yeah I'm not sure it's the healthiest environment to, to develop these young people. Maybe not. Hey, let's talk about a special vehicle in your life. You've been around so many cool vehicles, cool cars, bikes, all sorts of things. Is there, or can you even pick one, but is there one that really stands out for you? Well, you're right. I've, I've, I've been around <laughs> very cool cars, but, but for me, uh, you know, and, and it, it, you know, part of the reason we're having this conversation is, is to talk about reunion and, and taking the Mazda historic cars up there. But Mazda has this collection of historic vehicles and those four rotor rotary engine cars, that series of four rotor cars from 767 through to the 792, which was the 92 IMSA GTP car. They're just incredible. Those cars are just incredible. Um, and when you, again, again, studying the history and when you go back in history and understand the challenges that Mazda had to overcome 
to win the Le Mans race in 1991 mm-hmm. were just monumental. I mean, it was it's it's quite a story that that this little team that everybody had written off and said you're wasting your time trying to pursue this rotary engine thing so much so that the rules had actually changed for 92 and Mazda knew in 91 this was the last time they were going to have a chance to try and win Le Mans after being going there for 21 years this was the last chance they had to try and win with the rotary engine and they just pulled out all the stops it wasn't the fastest but they knew they had reliability at a at a speed that they were comfortable with and they had fuel fuel efficiency at at a speed they were comfortable with and they knew that if they just worked to their plan and just stuck to their plan that the others would fall by the wayside or at least they hoped they would they they had evidence to suggest they would and so the Mazda 787 767 both of those we'll have at at reunion in August uh, are very special cars to me because compared to today's cars they're quite simple but incredible, incredible vehicles. And then in the collection, Mazda has a collection of these cars in, in the basement in Irvine. In the collection, we also have the latest Mazda prototype, the, the RT24P that we won its last race in, uh, last October, last November rather, at Petit Le Mans. And that's a program that I specifically ran. And so that Mazda RT24P that we raced in the 2021 season, uh, that's a special car to me, especially the last time we ran it because we invited Mazda fans to submit their names via a, a, an online, a social media campaign we did. And we built, we printed their names on the livery of the car. Oh, nice. So that car raced at its last race with, I don't know, a couple of thousand names on it of not special people, not special guests, not sponsors, just regular people who, who love the program and submitted their names. And then we left the nose of the car without any signatures on it. And on the grid in Atlanta at Michelin Raceway Atlanta at Petit Le Mans, we handed out Sharpies and we allowed people to sign their names on the car. And, no kidding. And it was a very special time. It was, we knew, it was the last race for that car, the last race for the program. And it's a 10-hour race. Three, three hours in, we were three laps down. And we came back and won that race. So that was a really a fairy tale uh, story, a fairy tale day for us. And so that car is that car is a very important car for me. Mazda didn't they race uh, at the Del Mar Grand Prix when they were doing races there? Yeah. So GTP cars, we, we raced the 792 at Long Beach just recently this year. But back in the day, they raced at Del Mar. They didn't actually race at Long Beach. Uh, GTP cars raced at uh, Del Mar in '92. A silver car that. Um, uh, we had two of them, Price Cobb and Pete Halsmer raced them in 92. And the story of that car is is interesting because, as I mentioned, the people who ran the world championship and Le Mans had made a rule change that rotaries were no longer allowed in the world championship and at Le Mans for 92 onward. People like to say, well, Mazda won in 91 and then they got banned. <clears throat> That's not really the case. The rule, the rule set had already been approved and Mazda knew it was coming. But for 92, we weren't able to race uh, rotary engines on the world stage anymore. We raced a thing called an MXR01, which was a Judd engined, essentially a derivative of a Jaguar XJR14 uh, oh, that Mazda, yeah. Yeah, Mazda warmed over. Beautiful car, very high performance car, essentially a Formula One car with fenders on it. We, we have one of those in our collection, actually. But for, for 92, IMSA said, no, no, you can, you can go ahead and race rotary engines here. So Mazda embarked on... Uh, they had Lee Dykstra design uh, the 792P, which I think is one of the most beautiful race cars, not just Mazda's, but race cars that was ever built. It's such a such an organically shaped. I mean, it's timeless. Even today, it looks like it belongs uh, out on an IMSA grid. Um, 
and it had a four rotor, had the highest iteration four rotor engine, the RT R twenty six B, about produced about nine hundred horsepower in its day, and we raced two of those in the ninety two season, with the intention of that being a development year, and then in ninety three we would go after the the IMSA championship. Unfortunately, we had a tough year. They got a they got a couple of podiums. Price Cobb got a second place and a and a third place during the year. But by the end of that year, Mazda in Japan had then decided that that motorsports were not they didn't want to pursue motorsports any longer, and so um, the program was canceled. And when the program was canceled, uh, that ended the 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 that program. And so that car was a one year car only. There were two. There were three of them built. One of them ended up hanging in a in a restaurant in Southern California for a year. <laughs> wow. That has since been bought, and I think Jim Downing has just restored that one. Uh, we can't find the, the the third one because I believe it was crushed in Japan. And then we have the other one. We have the Price Cobb car. Uh, so the one that was crushed was Pete Halsmer's car. The one that we believe the one that Jim has is was the one that was never raced. Um, it was it was hung in a restaurant. So. That's an incredible car. Absolutely. No, car. no kidding. So here's an interesting question for you, Mo. If you were reincarnated as a vehicle, what would you be? Ooh. Um, I would have to say a McLaren M23. Oh, my. Okay. There's a special vehicle. Yeah. McLaren M23, which, which Emerson Fittipaldi won the world championship with in 74. Yeah. Raced in 75. James Hunt won the world championship in 76 by one point. Yeah. By then, of course, it, as we, as we talked earlier, it had the low airbox. I think the low airbox version is, is the prettiest. And then by 70, I think it was 77, they replaced it with the M26. So I think the M23 is, is a timeless design. Beautiful, beautiful. So, I like to ask my guests about books, great books. Is there a great book you'd like to recommend to our listeners today? Um, yes, uh, I have a lot of a lot <laughs> of book recommendations. Being a bit of a historian, I like I like books. Um, I just finished reading Jay Gers wrote a book with Al Junior's story. That's pretty good. I enjoyed a really really good book a few years ago. It's called Thunder in the Park, and it's the story of Tom Weecroft who bought and reconstituted Donington Park in England, which Donington Park was an old pre-war circuit that fell into disrepair. And in the in the mid-70s, Tom Wheatcroft was a was a basically a home builder. Um, and he bought it and spent a lot of money um, with his dream of bringing Formula One back to Donington Park, which he did in 93 uh, with the European Grand Prix, the famous race that um, Senna had that incredible opening lap and passed 14 cars or something on the opening lap. But yeah, that's a good book. You know, driver biographies are, are are interesting to me. Prime Movers, the story of Ilmore is another another really interesting book. But yeah. Yeah, that book about uh, Al, Little Al, is called Checkered Past. Yes. And, yeah. and uh, I had Jay as a guest on the show. We talked in depth about that. So I uh, heard a lot of people really, really enjoyed that book. But there's so many cool books. You've listed a lot of great ones. So I'm going to be the ultimate uh, provider of funds for you today. I'm going to enable you to jump into any race car and take it racing at Laguna Seca. I'll pay for the car, pay for the ride, pay for everything. If you had that option, what car would I put you in? It would have to be something older than current because I think current race cars, while while the performance is very, very impressive, I don't think they have the same visceral uh, experience as some of the older cars. I think they, they there's too much intervention by 
by electronic systems and 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 very clever engineers. Oh, they might go around the lap quicker, but I but I don't know that they would provide the same the same same fun experience. <laughs> um, the around Laguna Seca, I would say the uh, the seven nine two, the Mazda seven nine two uh, or the seven eight seven would be very very much fun. Or something, you know, <laughs> we have a series. If you, if you want to, if you want to think about the fun part of it, we have a series. Mazda has a series called the uh, Mazda MX Five Cup Series, uh-huh. um, and you know the the MX Five, the Miata is legendary for its driving, its handling characteristics, and its its it's rewarding driving, uh, put it that way. Oh yeah. Uh, and we have a series where the, where the engines are stock, the cars are modified a little bit to be race cars. They're on race tires, um, race suspension, race brakes, but the engines are stock. And as a momentum car, it's a car you really have to carry speed in the corners. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of very powerful cars out there who, you, who will go very fast down the straightaways. And then, then you, particularly in historic racing, we see this driver's, We'll park them in the corners, go slowly around the corners, and then go fast down the straightaways again. I don't know that there's any fun in that. Being able to carry speed in the middle of a corner uh, is, for me, a very rewarding exercise. Yeah. An MX-5 will do that. An, MX- an MX-5 driven fast is is going to deliver as much fun, maybe more than than some very very some more very expensive cars uh, that that it might that you might think of. So, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great way to go racing that whole series. I've had lots of people oh, yeah, on the show yeah. who've done that. Well, that is quite a stretch from a, uh, 792 or 787 to the MX-5, but I, I hear what you're saying. And of course, being an, being an old open wheel guy, something with something where I can see the wheels would be, would be interesting too. And again, because it was a, it was the, the top series in Ireland when I was growing up Formula Atlantic. And so a Chevron B29, Ooh. With a, with a BDA in it, that that would be uh, that be sweet. That would be sweet. So when I when I was a kid in school, there was a, a driver in England named Alo Lawler, an Irish guy who had a Chevron B twenty nine, and he brought it to Ireland for two races. And he went back to England in between the two races to his business. Yeah. But he left it. He parked it at a local gas station near near where I went to school. His mechanic stayed to work on it for the week. And every day after school, I knew the owner of the gas station. Every day after school, I went down, and the mechanic let me sit in the car, a, a bright yellow Chevron B29. And I absolutely felt that car still has an, an impact on me today. It's in England. I know the guy who owns it, but that car has an impact on me that lasts to this day. It's the most beautiful thing. Um, and so maybe maybe getting to drive, uh, that would be interesting. You've been all over the track today. <laughs> For sure. Well, you've taken us on a really fun ride. It's going to be great to see you at the uh, WeatherTech Laguna Raceway as part of the races coming up this uh, August. You listeners, get your tickets now. Get, get your butts out there because this is an event you don't want to miss. Could you leave us with a success quote or some words of inspiration today, Mo? Sure, I can do that. Before I do that, uh, I want to tell your listeners we'll have three cars there at the at Reunion: the seven eight seven that raced at Le Mans in nineteen ninety one, the sister car to the one that won, the seven six seven B that Elliot Forbes Robinson raced at Le Mans in eighty nine, and the IMSA championship winning RX seven GTO that won the IMSA championship in ninety one, the GTO championship. Please stop by. We'll have the cars there. We're we're the most open and accessible people. If you're if their listeners are at the track and they want to come by and have a look at the cars and and take pictures and do whatever you want, please stop by. Absolutely, um, delighted to to meet race fans everywhere we go. Um, in cool. terms of terms of a success quote, I had a conversation with a thirteen year old kid last weekend, uh, two weeks ago at, at Mid Ohio, 
who's an aspiring race car driver. And I sat, he wanted to spend some time with me and I sat and talked with him a little bit. And, and I said, tell me where you're going to be in 10 years. And for a 13 year old kid, that's impossible. But <laughs> yeah. the exercise, tell me where you go. Well, I want to be a race car driver and I want to be doing this. And I said, okay. So the question I asked him, and we alluded to it a little bit earlier is tell me what you're going to do tomorrow to be one day closer to that goal. Mm. And that's what pe- people, people set goals and people talk about you know, their aspirations and all that kind of stuff. And they can very clearly identify what, how they're going to behave or how they're going to spend their money, what they're going to do when they get there. But they don't have a plan for tomorrow. And you basically 10 years is 3,650 days. By this time tomorrow, your goal now is 3,649 days away. So what have you done to be one day closer? And that's what I like to ask people. Great advice. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. How can people follow you and Mazda? Uh, Mazda Motorsports particularly has its own uh, social channels. We're at Mazda Racing on Twitter and Mazda Motorsports on Instagram and uh, Facebook, and we post a lot of content uh, about our grassroots efforts, about our uh, MX5 Cup, about our historic programs. We're very interactive on there. We do a lot of stuff on there. And me personally, I'm. Uh, people can find me at, a, at most racetracks most weekends. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the the goatee wearing guy in the Mazda jacket, and uh, and uh, I'm happy to talk to anybody who's a race fan or anybody who's not. I'm I'm uh, I love I love spending time with like minded people. Absolutely. Well, you can find links to everything on Mo Murray's show notes page on the Car Show website. I'll post everything there. I want to do a shout out. Thank you to Barry Topke, who, of course, introduced me to Mo. Barry is a past guest here on Car Show, and he's a key part of the team at WeatherTech Laguna Seca Raceway and the Relax Motorsports, Monterey Motorsports Reunion. Mo, thanks for uh, being so generous with your time today and sharing an incredible history. I cannot wait to see you this summer. Until we talk again, I'll see you at the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome. Thank you so much for joining us on today's ride here at Cars Yeah. Drive on over to CarsYeah.com to find show notes and inspiring automotive fun. Download your free copy of Filler Up, a fun book filled with gorgeous photographs of fuel filler fun, including quotes from more inspiring automotive enthusiasts. Download your copy today, and we'll see you next time on Cars Yeah. Yeah.